0: Hello and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I am Dr. M, your host, and this is volume 13, issue number 11. This audiocast newsletter corresponds with the week of February 27, 2023. This week, we're going to look at the second part of our cholesterol lipid hypothesis story. We're going to look at head trauma and also recipe of the week. Free thoughts this week, just breathe. Take some time and just breathe. Focus on breathing, how you feel in the moment, and everything related to the autonomic process we know is breathing. So there's very little going on in the world of coronavirus right now, so I'm just going to give you an update only on the strains. Currently, as of the week of February 18th, XBB 1.5 is 80% of the circulating strains. The rest of it's made up of BQ 1.1, BQ.1, and XBB. Good news is none of these variants of concern are showing any sign of disease increase in morbidity or any mortality changes significant. Infectivity, that's another level. Serious, like measles plus spread level, so quite incredible. But not much to to really talk about other than that, so we're going to skip on. So the cholesterol lipid hypothesis part two. So far in the last week's newsletter, we talked about how cholesterol and lipoproteins, like low-density lipoprotein, otherwise known as LDL, are inherently good and necessary unless they become unbalanced, either through genetics and most definitely through our lifestyle choices. It turns out that the carrier lipoproteins like LDL and HDL cholesterol are an ancient part of our innate immune system that have an important function in fighting infection. We have always used these lipoproteins to clear infectious material before they can do damage throughout our circulation in our tissues. Remember that the carrier lipoprotein CARs are known as chylomicrons, very low density lipoproteins, intermediate lipoproteins, low density lipoproteins, and high density lipoproteins all based on the amount of triglyceride and cholesterol inside them. They have a primary role to carry fats and energy around the body. While they serve the fat-carrying primary role dutifully, these same little LDL and VLDL and HDL particles, I call them CARs, float around in your body and in your bloodstream, looking for disturbed infectious particles or pathogens themselves to throw in their car's trunk in order to transport them back for elimination in the liver. Let us say that these lipoproteins, either LDL or HDL type, are these cars that are waiting around the body for bacterial cell wall debris to enter the bloodstream from somewhere in the body where they are trying to grow and establish residence, aka an infection the HDL particle may pick up the bacterial cell wall debris and begin to carry it back to the liver for filtration and destruction. Let us also say that the volume of bacteria and bacterial cell wall debris floating around are elevated to a point that they are causing a consistency of increased volume and number of labor protein CARs being produced to handle the burden. That's an interesting hypothesis. Genetically, there is some evidence that a certain group of humans have genetic mutations like apolipoprotein E type 4 and PCSK9 or proprotein convertase subtilicin kexin type 9 serine protease variants that increase the circulation of these lipoprotein CARs In order to play a large part in our ancient rapid reaction force called the innate immune system, that may have been highly protective in a pre antibiotic era. Remember from earlier discussions that these types of mutations exist for a reason and are not mistakes. There must be an evolutionary pressure in society for this mutation to persist. My hypothesis is that these mutations, like ApoE4 and PCSK9, That are now associated with heart disease because of our current lifestyle choices used to be greatly beneficial when infection was our greatest risk of death. Infection was our greatest risk of death throughout human existence until the advent of sanitation, vaccination, and antibiotics. But this is a relatively recent change in human existence on a continuum. Now that you've indulged me to lay out this hypothetical scenario, We now need to switch gears and look at the intestinal microbiome for clues to the heart disease story. It is clear to me that these metaphorical CARs can bind to and eliminate viruses, bacterial cell wall debris and parasites throughout the body as a first line of defense, innate immunity. The gut microbiome harbors trillions of good and bad bacteria and their respective cell wall components like LPS or lipopolysaccharide. We know from the amazing work of Patrice Connie, and Alessio Fasano, that the bacterial cell wall debris from a dysfunctional intestinal microbiome can translocate into the bloodstream and circulate around the body causing inflammation, called low-level endotoxemia. The lipoprotein CARs have binding sites, what I call the trunks, that grab the LPS and other bacterial endotoxin and transport them back to the liver for excretion in bile and therefore your, bow- your bowel, stool. This is very advantageous mechanistically for survival. If you are high, if you are in a highly infectious environment like a third world country or a developing nation where the access to sanitation and medicines are not so high or historically for everybody in the times of 2000 years ago plus. So let us look at this infection fighting reality and study. Let us say that We have two sets of rats and infect them both with a deadly dose of bacteria called E. coli, while simultaneously giving one group an infusion of these protective lipoproteins. In the end, you will have most of the lipoprotein-infused group relaxed and alive, while the other group has died from the infection. It turns out that the HDL cholesterol gets used up trying to clear the acute inflammation and infection. As the HDL levels drop, LDL cholesterol and triglyceride levels rise as the next line of defense. As the infection clears, we would expect the HDL and the LDL levels to flip-flop back to normal. This appears to happen and is an amazing reality. Let's pause here. The mammalian system was set up to provide a molecule with multiple roles that would already be floating all around the body to deliver energy, packaged inside, but also to engage a pathogen immediately. It's a pretty unique double use of a molecule. So let's imagine that a warrior in the Middle Ages gets cut by a dirty sword or a modern American with intestinal overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria due to poor quality, dietary choices, and antibiotic exposure. Then the availability of these lipoproteins to grab bacterial cell wall debris or bacterial particles and remove them rapidly is life-saving and a thing of beauty in the short term. It would therefore be nice to have a genetic ability to have more of these lipoproteins floating around to protect us against infectious disease if the environment dictated its need. Scientifically, it would make sense, then, that if you have an elevated cholesterol level, you may be suffering from an infection causing the body to mobilize more cholesterol to clear the systemic pathogens. The big question now is, if it exists, is this an acute or chronic problem? Let us look at an acute scenario. There is a deadly disease called bacterial meningococcal sepsis that is fatal for many infected patients. As a pediatrician, this disease scares me because it kills so quickly. When researchers evaluated the death rate in relation to the cholesterol level, they found an inverse relationship in other words at the time of infection. If you have higher levels of lipoproteins, you add a higher survival rate. The decreased group had much lower levels of LDL. To me, the rationale behind the why is that the removal of the lipopolysaccharide and other pathogenic debris reduces the inflammatory response to LPS by the immune system, leading to an improved immunometabolic survival. Because if you get over-inflamed, as we've seen with COVID, death rate goes up, or subsequent post-survival pathology is high. So there's a a balance point between how much inflammation you want in response to an infection or a disease and how that resolution should look. The study of immunology is fascinating as we keep getting closer and closer to a better understanding of the realities behind why humans now are immunologically so challenged. And a lot of it has to do with the innate immune system and how food... Triggers problems inside our body that then trigger the immune system to be on high alert constantly. After years of studying the various microbiomes in the human body, it would stand to reason that one of the major risk factors for human disease of all kinds is intestinal dysbiosis, or poor quality gut bacteria. To me, this is true, and there are a litany of studies showing this fact to be true for chronic disease. A chronic gut dysbiosis or abnormal microbiome that is primarily driven by dietary influences that does not kill you would be expected to force the body to mobilize lipoproteins from the liver to clear the translocated bacterial LPS endotoxin that has made its way into the bloodstream. The increased levels would be a response to infection and not just a cause of CVD. Thus, the elevated levels of cholesterol in the genetically susceptible individuals is a response to this burden this is exactly what i believe happens in the cardiovascular disease world when individuals have elevated levels of lipoprotein and have disease this is not to say that we do not need to worry about the higher levels because we do as they directly correlate with negative cardiovascular disease outcomes just sort of an understanding of potentially the why Based on the data as provided, it's clear to me that an elevated cholesterol level is not the only and maybe not even the most significant upstream issue with coronary artery disease, but is a very important marker of potentially intestinal dysbiosis and other chronic inflammatory problems, including systemic inflammation. That is in response to autoimmune disease, per se. There's a lot going on here. Thus, I believe that the, and the bigger antecedent upstream player in this game is the word inflammation, but also gut dysbiosis. And to me, that means ultimately the dietary influences that occur over our lifetime. For example, there is a two-fold increased risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with autoimmune disease. There's got to be a reason for that. Why would somebody with an autoimmune problem have twice the level of cardiovascular disease in the natural population? Autoimmune disease has a hallmark of chronic inflammatory burdens. When you get an autoimmune disease patient sick in the clinic, when you you see them and they're in an ill state, their CRP are a marker of inflammation, their ferritin level, their SED rates. All these things that we check for inflammation levels are super high. So inflammation is a common known among these patients. And oh, by the way, inflammation is associated with intestinal dysbiosis. And oh, by the way, high sensitivity to CRP, when elevated, is a marker of impending potential damage to the heart. There's a link here. Now that we have a basic understanding of the immune function of cholesterol, it is highly possible and frankly likely only a marker of underlying chronic infection in the gut, oral cavity, or systemic inflammation like autoimmune disease. And an activated cholesterol hepatic synthesis byproduct response in genetically susceptible individuals is what we're sort of seeing. In certain individuals that have genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms for either the lipoprotein receptor function or intestinal reabsorption of cholesterol or lipids or the elevated cholesterol that does not get cleared appropriately from the liver and intestines after it is upregulated and then... The cholesterol volume is likely to cause a concentration gradient, pushing the lipoprotein into the heart vessel wall, leading to atherosclerotic events to take place over time via immune system sensing, engulfment, and deposition in the artery wall. The model proposed by most cardiologists comes to life and is legitimized at this point. But again, I sort of think of this in terms of they're not mutually exclusive, What the world of cardiology believes that the cholesterol is the main player, not discounting that. What I would really like to know is how things like these genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms, like APOE4 or potentially genes like APOC3 or PCSK9, how they are involved in elevating these levels of lipoproteins at baseline. The ability to do this, that again may have been evolutionary evolutionary advantageous a long time ago, but now may be problematical in the context of our intestinal dysbiosis. And so if we do have these high volumes of lipid cars floating around our body because we have chronic, what appears to be a endotoxemia, then, oh boy, you could have a concentrating concentration gradient. And oh boy, then you could have what we end up seeing as typical coronary vascular disease. So for this week, I'm going to stop here because this goes on for four more weeks. We're going to get into this a little bit more. We need to understand what the downstream risks are. But first, we need to understand how the heart attack actually occurs and what are some of the pieces that lead to the event setting up that risk. Section two, science literature quick hits. Number one. Does Male Chronic Alcohol consumption Affect Fertility and Relationship? From study by Roach et al., 2023. Quote, Mechanistically, we found that preconception paternal alcohol exposure disrupts embryonic gene expression, including FGF4 and EGFR, two critical regulators of trophoectoderm stem cell growth and placental patterning, with lasting impacts on histological organization of the late-term placenta. The changes in placental histoarchitecture were accompanied by altered regulation of pathways controlling mitochondrial function, oxidative phosphorylation, and some imprinted genes. Our studies indicate that male alcohol use may significantly impede IVF success rates in vitro fertilization, increasing the couple's financial burden and emotional stress and highlights the need to expand pre-pregnancy messaging to emphasize the reproductive dangers of alcohol use by both parents. End quote. To me, this adds to a litany of new data that's coming out regarding the risks of alcohol in humans with chronic use. Poor reproduction is just a new wrinkle in long line of concerns. Number two, from Dana Shafar et al., 2021. Quote, the age, sex, and race-adjusted incidence of all of and mortality from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, among all NFL players who debuted between 1960 and 2019 was four times as high as those of the general population. Athletes with the diagnosis of ALS had longer NFL careers than those without ALS, suggesting an association between NFL duration of play and ALS, end quote. For me, this study matters because a fourfold increase in risk of a neurodegenerative disease in a sport that is highly associated with concussions and head trauma leads me to a probable causation exposure linkage risk. So this is a big deal. I don't know what it means for everybody as far as stopping playing sports like this, but man, it does say something about what our risks are and maybe what some upstream preventative measures need to be put into place i.e. the discussion around the nfl and resting more i think about dietary influences that make a huge effect on this right so a lot to be said here over time number three in a study looking at head trauma again and hazard ratios for all-cause mortality was presented in the journal JAMA by ELSER, ELSER 2023 quote median follow-up time was 27 years head injuries occurred among 2,400 participants, most of which were classified as mild. The hazard ratio for all-cause mortality among individuals with head injury was 1.99 compared to those with no head injury, with evidence of dose-dependent association with head injury frequency. One head injury equals a hazard ratio of 1.66, two or more head injuries, hazard ratio of 2.11, and severity mild, hazard ratio was 2.16 for moderate severity and in 2.87 for severe penetrating scenario. So you say, okay, hazard ratio of 2.87 if if it's a severe and penetrating injury, over time, that's a big risk increase. So we now know in this study, coupled to many other studies that have occurred in the past that each head injury increases your mortality risk with worsening severity leading to ever yet worsened outcomes. And couple this to study right before where we see neurodegenerative disease with ALS. Head injury is a big problem, folks. And having your kids play sports where they're at risk to head injury consistently when young is probably not the best idea. Have them play multiple sports. Play a little bit of football here and there. But cross-train, do other stuff, keep themselves in shape so they do enter professional sports like football or soccer or whatever it is that they play where they're getting hit in the head a lot, they didn't spend their entire childhood getting hit in the head. I don't know what that'll do because it's not studied, but at least less head injury equals less risk. So the take-home point is we need to do all that we can to reduce head injuries first and foremost by using quality equipment as well as protective training to limit the risk of head injury, i.e. learning how to tackle, learning how to hit. We need to encourage omega-3 fatty acid intake to prevent and or resolve the post-injury inflammation. I'm a big fan of baseline fish oil intake with increased dose post-injury. We need to encourage healthy food consumption to also reduce brain inflammation, but also systemic inflammation. Section 3 is a kale and chickpea salad. There's a link in the newsletter as well to all the other discussion points so far. Any of the studies cited are also linked to the newsletter. A kale and chickpea salad is loaded with micronutrients like vitamins A, B6, C, E, K, iron, magnesium, manganese, calcium, potassium, phosphorus, as well as good macros like carbs and protein. Bolus of necessary micronutrients for the everyday metabolism and bone health of humans. Kids will eat this if you offer it to them without question of whether they will or won't. If you offer high quality food at every meal and let them choose from that plate and don't offer other foods that are not good for them, you will eventually win the battle of getting kids to eat healthy. All right, folks, that's all for this week. The song of the week is Freddie Jones Band in a Daydream. As always, the link's in the podcast. Hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter, Audiocast, is for educational informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.